very much and welcome everyone to the second session. Um, I would like to reiterate the thanks that uh, the speakers in the first panel gave to the Smithsonian Institution and the National Portrait Gallery, as well as to Montana State University and the Terra Foundation for American <laughs> Art. I think you'll find that the talk that I'm going to give uh, right now uh, picks up on a number of the issues and themes that were developed in the first panel, so I hope we can have a continuing discussion about some of those ideas. In the spring of 1770, three statues sailed from London to ports in colonial America. One was bound for Charleston, South Carolina, and it represented William Pitt the Elder, a former prime minister and a powerful politician known as the Great Commoner, a man who was celebrated by Americans as a champion of colonial liberty. Modeled by Joseph Wilton, London's leading sculptor, the marble statue of Pitt stood over seven feet tall. It figured Pitt in the role for which he was best known, that of a commanding orator in the classical tradition of Cicero. Here's the statue as it appears today, without its arms, at the Charleston Courthouse. And here's where it was originally installed, at the intersection of the city's main thoroughfares, meeting, and broad streets. It remained at this site for several decades, losing one arm to cannonball fire during the American Revolution. The other two statues were modeled by Wilton, too, but they were destined for sites further north in New York City. One was a smaller-scale version of Charleston's Pit at the intersection of William and Wall Streets, about a block away from where the New York Stock Exchange is today. This version is also missing both arms as well as its head. It was the victim of an iconoclastic attack in 1777, one year into the Revolutionary War. The third statue represented another British leader, the one who was most near and dear to the hearts of colonials in the decade preceding the war, namely King George III. And as you can see in the inset, which shows an early 20th century watercolor that reimagined the statue's appearance, this was a huge equestrian statue. It was modeled on the classical precedent of Marcus Aurelius on Rome's Capitoline Hill, and it too came from Wilton's workshop. It was enormous, and it was visually stunning. Made of gilded lead, it towered some 15 feet above the ground in a small park at the tip of Manhattan called Bowling Green, adjacent to the British Battery and Fort. Like New York's statue of William Pitt, it too was attacked during the Revolutionary War. Following a reading of the Declaration of Independence, the statue was pulled from its pedestal beheaded, quartered, and boiled into bullets at a Connecticut military depot. It survived in fragments thanks largely to loyalists who buried the parts in fields, in bogs, and under floorboards, including the now iconic horse's tail at the center. Three English statues, two colonial cities, one London sculptor. One more thing linked these statues. They were each commissioned by colonial assemblies in 1766 following the repeal of the Stamp Act, the first taxation act to excite widespread protest throughout the colonies. The South Carolina Assembly voted to commission their statue in order to honor Pitt, who had argued against the Stamp Act in Parliament. New York followed suit, and to satisfy local political interests, 
It also commissioned Wilton to create the rather different statue of the king. Born of a fractious moment in political history, the three statues continued to animate and antagonize local politics through the 1770s, centering public rituals and organizing urban space, until all three were partially or wholly destroyed during the opening salvos of the revolution. <clears throat> now, if this all sounds vaguely familiar, it's because the narrative of the statue's destruction became part of popular accounts of the American Revolution, as well as histories tracing the emergence of an, emer of an independent United States. <clears throat> Throughout the 19th century, the attack on the sculpture of the king was represented in countless texts and pictures, including this painting by an immigrant German painter from the New York Historical Society. When the Historical Society reopened its doors in 2011 following a renovation, its newly designed foyer featured a digitized image that literally put this event into motion. And as you can see in these images, school children gather in front of the digitized wall, wave their hands, and the statue comes dramatically crashing down in a cloud of dust. <laughs> Especially love this guy who's using a Jedi force maneuver. <laughs> now as this history of depiction reveals, and as I argue in the book project from which this paper is drawn, this narrative of iconoclasm has become a creation story for New York City. The death of the king, or at least his statue, marks the birth of an American New York, distinct from a Dutch New York or a British New York. It also enables the city, the city to state a place within the history of the revolution. In effect, it is New York's answer to the Boston Tea Party. Yet, I want to suggest today that this is not just a story of British-American relations, a history that proceeded in a straight line from England to New York. <clears throat> Rather, the creation and reception of the statues also involve Britain's sometimes nemesis, France, and even distant Italy, whose classical past was an important touchstone for Georgian England. The statues were not merely part of a circum-Atlantic world, which is how we often think about the early American world. They also owed their genesis to a circum-European movement of people, art, and ideas that linked London to parts of the 18th century continent. I'd like to explore this point today by focusing on Joseph Wilton, the maker of the three sculptures. I'll begin by tracing Wilton's artistic education on the continent to show how the work that he made for the colonies was indebted to both French and Italian sculpture. Next, I'll examine controversies that his statues aroused in London and suggest how they were partly embedded in English anxieties about French sculpture. In drawing these connections, I hope to add a sculptural dimension to our conversations about painted and printed portraits, and to show how late colonial American art, at least in this case, was neither quite exclusively British, nor quite exclusively French, but rather something that took shape within a triangulated cultural space. Joseph Wilton presents a bit of a paradox. He is quite possibly the most accomplished sculptor that you have never heard of. Yet in his day, as this painting suggests, Wilton was a notable artist. He appears here in the center of Rigaud's portrait, holding a mallet. He's joined by the architect Sir William Chambers at left. Chambers was a frequent collaborator of Wilton's. 
and his even more famous colleague at Wright, Sir Joshua Reynolds. Together with Chambers and Reynolds, Wilton was a founder of the Royal Academy. He was also an official statuary to the court of George III and a prolific carver of marble portraits, chimney pieces, and funerary monuments. He managed a large workshop near Cavendish Square in the West End, then an up-and-coming area, and today his work is scattered through London museums, English parish churches, country estates, and the Caribbean islands. Indeed, Wilton was born into the, interest, the industry of making material things for visual consumption. His father, William, owned several busy workshops that produced ornamental plaster work. One of them was adjoined to the family home in Charing Cross, near Trafalgar Square today, right down the street from the French sculptor Hubert Le Sœur's bronze equestrian statue of Charles I. This was one of the most embattled sculptures in English history. Cast in 1633, the statue was seized during the Commonwealth, buried by a sympathetic brazier who misled authorities to believe he had melted it down, and triumphantly installed at Charing Cross following the Restoration. As prints of the statue demonstrate, the monument visually dominated the neighborhood and served to organize social experience. In this drawing, a crowd has collected around the pedestal to watch a flogging. Two boys have scaled the plinth to obtain a better view. Presiding directly above, the statue seems to oversee this public spectacle, effectively figuring the state's authority to mete out criminal punishment. Growing up in direct sightline of the statue, Wilton would have learned that the image of a ruler on horseback resonated deeply within English culture, both present and past. And though I won't be saying too much today about the equestrian statue that Wilton made for New York, I'd be happy to explore that issue further during the questions and answers, especially in light of Heather McPherson's presentation on the subject. Thanks to his father's prosperity, Joseph Wilton was able to travel to the continent to learn the sculpture trade. And in 1739, he left England to study in Flanders, France, and Italy. He would remain abroad for 14 years. His training began in Nivelles with Laurent Delvaux, a Flemish sculptor who had worked in London during Wilton's childhood. It continued in Paris with Jean-Baptiste Pigalle, who had attracted praise for novel renderings of mythological figures, including this one, Mercury attaching his winged sandals. Under Pigalle, as the British art historian Malcolm Baker has explained in a study of the two artists, Wilton learned how to compose dynamic shapes and how to finish marble surfaces. <coughs> Pigalle was also known for his highly veristic representations, and his example, together with Wilton's later study of Roman busts, encouraged Wilton's close study of faces, as in several busts of William Pitt that Wilton completed back in London. And here we might notice the exacting musculature, the taut lips, the inclusion of warts, even the baggy eyelids. Wilton also surely gleaned from Pigalle an important lesson about royal support. Pigalle made numerous statues for Madame de Pompadour, one of the most significant art patrons of the Rococo. And shortly after his return to London, Wilton would be appointed court sculptor to the newly crowned George III, 
who himself was eager to prove his chops as a cultural benefactor. There's another striking, if rather coincidental, parallel between the two artists. Much as Wilton's statue of George III was destroyed during the American Revolution, Pigalle helped bring to completion Bouchardin's equestrian statue of Louis XV that met the same fate during the French Revolution. And here's a print showing that statue well before its destruction during its festive installation in the 1760s. Wilton left Paris for Italy in 1747 in the company of another Frenchman, his friend Louis-Francois Roubiliac, who was already esteemed as one of London's most inventive sculptors. In Rome, Wilton entered a British expatriate culture crowded with noblemen on the Grand Tour and antiquarians captivated by archaeological excavations. He made the most of these opportunities, sketching both ancient and modern art, including one equestrian statue, Agostino Cornaccini's marble sculpture of Charlemagne on horseback at St. Peter's. His training paid off in the form of a papal medal and numerous orders for copies of canonical sculptures. One of them, a bust of the Laocoon, demonstrates both his technical dexterity and his ability to polish, polish surfaces so smoothly that skin seems persuasively pulled <coughs> over bone. After Rome, Wilton spent four years in Florence, where he made numerous copies of antique statues and developed a circle of friends and patrons who shared his appetite for the classics. His burgeoning friendships with Robert Adam, Chambers, and Reynolds marked the beginnings of professional alliances that would reinvigorate neoclassicism in Britain. In a portrait of 1752, Reynolds portrayed Wilton as a thoughtful, reflective soul. Hovering between darkness and light, Wilton's head appears boldly modeled, a pictorial analog to the chiseled busts for which he would soon be renowned. A year later, Reynolds tried to coax his friend to come home from Italy. I think it's high time for you to begin a reputation in London, he said, and he urged Wilton to bring back as much Carrara marble as he could afford. Wilton did, and he brought back much more than that. He returned to England with an entourage of British and Italian artists versed in classicism, a network of aristocratic contacts and enough plaster casts and marble reproductions to set up a busy workshop making antique copies in London. Wilton's continental experience, which was highly unusual for an English sculptor of his era, attracted the notice of writers like Tobias Smollett, who optimistically described Wilton as a cross between Bernini and Michelangelo. Just as important, Wilton's training shaped him into an artist practiced, like his teacher Pigalle, in both classical and Baroque idioms. His timing was also exceedingly fortunate. Wilton's command of diverse artistic traditions was well matched to British political and cultural ambitions at the very time that the expanding empire needed the legitimacy of historical precedent as well as the brio of invention. He owed his success in part to canny self-promotion, leveraging his modest abilities, as Douglas Fordham has put it, on the fulcrum of British imperial might. In quick succession, Wilton found himself at the center of some of the most important commissions for sculpture in London during the 1760s. 
<coughs> he formed part of the team, for example, of architects, carvers, and gilders who produced a new state coach for George III's coronation. It was a mobile fantasia of ornament and gilding, and it quite literally put Wilton's work into motion, rolling the king out of St. James's Park into the streets of London. Another commission produced a pedestrian statue of George himself <coughs> for the city's Royal Exchange, the commercial hub of the British Empire. Like the coach, this statue required Wilton to summon his classical know-how to model an official representation of the crown. It's no longer extant, but a contemporary <coughs> illustration pictures an animated figure posed in a niche and dressed in Roman armor in the long convention of statues of English kings. The most visible commission of all was a Westminster Abbey monument to the deceased General James Wolfe, who had led the English to victory against French troops in Quebec. And I'm showing you two photographs because it's notoriously hard to get good pictures of this monument um, in the Abbey, and hopefully these two together will give you a good sense of the composition. More so than the other projects, the monument illuminates Wilton's position at the heart of the political contestations that entangled England, France, and America in the 1760s. For Wilton's task was to memorialize a man who had become a martyr for the glory of English imperial conquest across the Atlantic. Now, so far, I've suggested two ways in which Wilton's early career was implicated in transnational networks of culture and politics. His artistic knowledge, practice, and style was indebted to periods of study in France and Italy. And his earliest public commissions were mired in the military ambitions of the Seven Years' War. In my remaining time, I'd like to briefly consider how his American commissions for the statues of Pitt and the King were also complicated by Britain's <coughs> cultural relationship with France. In particular, the statue for South Carolina was hotly contested in London. And in the negative critiques directed at the sculpture, we can see how its reception was mediated by anxieties about French public sculpture. The admiration that many colonial Americans and many Britons felt for Pitt in the years prior to the Revolutionary War is evident in images that circulated on both sides of the Atlantic. Sympathetic artists like Nathaniel Hurd in Boston celebrated Pitt as a guardian of English civil rights, often picturing him with the Magna Carta in hand. Here he appears with the king at top and Wolfe on the right as British worthies. Satirists, on the other hand, parodied his ostensible virtues and outsized ambition. In this etching, a colossal pit on crutches and stilts strides boldly across the Atlantic. He dangles his right stilt, labeled Sedition, over New York Harbor. It's fastened with fishing line, and the waters are populated by hungry colonials who have their mouths open, gaping at the fish hooks. The same event that inspired the commissions for statues of Pitt also precipitated this image, namely the Stamp Act repeal. Pitt's vociferous defense of colonial protests against taxation without representation made him into a hero for Americans from South Carolina to New York. 
Some Londoners, notably, agreed that this was grounds for raising a statue in Pitt's honor. Thomas Hollis, a prominent Whig, and here he is in a bust by Wilton, urged Britons throughout the empire, and I quote, to erect a statue to that man in the metropolis of your dominions. Place a garland of oak leaves on the pedestal, engrave in it Concord. Hollis may have encouraged the publication of two engravings that likewise urged raising memorial statues to Pitt. In the repeal, or the funeral, of Miss Ameristamp, a line of solemn parliamentary ministers parades the stamp act's coffin to its tomb. In the background, a large crate labeled, A Statue of Mr. Pitt is ready for transport. This was well before Wilton had ever actually received any commissions for the statues. In a sequel engraving entitled Goody Bowl, or the second part of the repeal, Pitt features twice, once in the foreground, supported on a crutch, where he mediates the dispute between Britannia and America, and again on the distant shore, presumably the colonies, where he appears in the form of a monumental sculpture in contemporary dress, attended by a seated figure of liberty. Once carving on the actual statues of Pitt was underway, however, some locals responded with equivocation and even downright hostility. Unfortunately for Wilton, news of the Charleston Commission coincided with a political misstep by William Pitt. The great commoner had accepted a peerage from the king. He was henceforth known as the Earl of Chatham. Some critics bet that the Americans would reject the very statues they had just ordered once they learned that Pitt had quit the House of Commons. Down go the marble statues, one newspaper rather uncannily predicted that at Charlestown will face the fate, will share the fate of the self-murderer. It will be buried in the center of four crossways. Pitt's new title likewise prompted a warning to Charlestonians. A man calling himself a friend to America cautioned, and I quote, you idolize a man whom you do not know. Pitt's carriage was problematic, but just as troubling was the proposition that a statue was to be raised to a living man. This was rather unconventional in England, and British colonials who had little experience with sculptural traditions might be forgiven for their ignorance, but cosmopolitan Londoners knew better. The friend to America explained, Statues are erected only for princes, and when they are, it should be only to the good and great, and not till they are dead. For the meaning of a statue is to preserve their memory when the original is gone nor ought they to be erected till then, not knowing the part of many may act whilst living. Statues, sir, are dangerous things. They impress the people's minds with slavery. The greatest honors bestowed on philosophers, heroes, generals, orators in Europe is to place their bust in a church or town hall. So this point was pretty clear. If the Earl of Chatham were to merit a statue, the only appropriate form was a modest bust in a civic or ecclesiastical setting, because only royals, and dead royals at that, had statues raised in their honor. Even then, such monuments were dangerous things, capable of impressing the people's minds with slavery. And I should note that this did not mean chattel slavery in this context, but rather a more generalized 18th century notion of political oppression. This worrying comment is telling, for it resonates with anxieties lingering well after the Protestant Reformation in England, 
about the seductive allure of idols, whether religious or secular, as in politicians who seem too popular among the people. In fact, such, con such concerns would persist for decades in Britain, and canny artists exploited them. Charles Williams caricatured Pitt's son, William Pitt the Younger, a two-time prime minister, as a golden idol naively adored by John Bull and several government ministers. Yet as the art historian Joan Coutu has suggested, there may have been another reason for Britain's reluctance to raise statues to the Pitts, and for that matter, to any other living people. She suggests that they were eager to distance themselves from sculptural practices in 18th century France, where statues had been, laid, had been raised in honor of living French kings. Coutu observes that funeral monuments like that of Wolfe, and I quote, were invested with grief as well as gratitude, but those to living individuals smacked a little too much of deification, unquote. Liberal Britons, whether Tory or Whig, were especially wary of any art form that hinted at royal absolutism. Such sentiments also informed satires of Wilton's equestrian statue of George III. And I should mention that this print pictures a statue that was a duplicate of the New York sculpture. This one was placed in London's Berkeley Square, and many Londoners suspected that the king himself was behind its creation and its installation. This worrisome prospect of a monument raised by and for a sitting monarch helps explain the caption that accompanied the satire. And it reads, one of the headmen of Gotham caused a statue of himself to be erected in the character of Marcus Aurelius. But the statuary, knowing nothing of that prince, took his likeness from Nero. <laughs> now this is a swipe at both the sculptor and the king. And one quick witticism, it suggests the limits of sculptural possibility in Britain at the time. In conclusion, the images that I've briefly discussed illuminate a rather remarkable aspect about the discursive functions of sculpture in the late Georgian period. In statues, Britons found a pliant medium for parsing their thoughts about public influence and the politics of empire in the wake of the Stamp Act repeal. Joseph Wilton was at the heart of these developments. By tracing his artistic education on the continent, we can see the French and Italian origins of sculptures that are usually explained as British or American. By examining the anxieties that greeted his statues of Pitt and the King, we can see how British art was shaped by life across the channel. Of course, and as this symposium will continue to explore, British, French, and American art would remain in dialogue for many decades to come. Here's a case in point. A dozen years after Wilton's statue of the king was destroyed in New York, his copy remained standing in Berkeley Square. But maybe not for much longer, as the statue itself seems to intimate in this satirical etching. Here, Wilton's statue has trotted away from its pedestal in order to investigate a political gathering at the house of William Petty, the first Marquis of Lansdowne. As prime minister in 1782 and 83, Lansdowne had negotiated an end to the American Revolution. During the 1790s, he supported Republican causes in France, for which he was castigated in the London press. 
Lansdowne's politics, in short, were enough to make a royal statue shiver with dread. Peering through a spyglass, Wilton's statue sees tricorn hats with black French rosettes, and he hears the lines of the revolutionary anthem, Sa Ira. He raises his left hand in alarm. Louis XVI had already been guillotined in Paris, and the gilded head of Wilton's New York statue had ominously been sent back to London. Sayers' print intimates that George III might be next. In so doing, it dramatically illustrates the transnational worlds that animated British sculpture at the close of the 18th century. Thank you.